Jim Boyce, James Boyce, has helpfully explained uh, the, the doctrine of providence to mean that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but rather works within creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. And that's a great biblical definition of providence. Simply put, if we boil it all down, God is in charge, God has a plan, and God is at work. That's what we mean when we, when we talk about that big word, providence. And we need a robust understanding of God's providence. I need that. You, this morning, need a robust understanding of God's providence. We need this truth to be more than just an idea in our minds. We need it to be a part of the very fiber of our faith. Otherwise, when we face tragedy, when we deal with injustice, when we wait with no answers, we may start to doubt that God is really there. We may start to doubt that God actually hears us, that, that God actually cares. But we also need a robust understanding of God's providence because on the flip side, when we experience comfort and success and we're on the mountaintop, we may be tempted to foolishly think that we actually got ourselves there. The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, with all of its near misses, with its tragedies, with its surprising coincidences, with all of its unlikely plot twists, it shows us that we serve a God who always works all things together for good. Both the depth of the prison and the glory of the palace, according to Genesis, are not actions of chance. It's the work of of God. It's God's doing. Genesis tells us about a God who makes great and precious promises to save and to bless those who suffer under the curse of sin. And it records for us how those promises are brought to pass. It's through unlikely circumstances. It's through unlikely people. And it's all done in God's perfect timing. As we've been seeing over the last several weeks, the story of Joseph assures us that God's providence ensures, guarantees the fulfillment of God's promises. This episode of the Joseph story recounts for us how God raised Joseph up from the prison and brought him into the palace. If you remember, Joseph was a lot different than his brothers. Not only was he one of the, the youngest, he had 10 older brothers. He's a lot different than his brother Judah in specific. Unlike immoral Judah, who became infamous for his unknowing dalliance with his daughter-in-law, Joseph had modeled godly integrity. We saw this last week. As he was in his master's house, he faced unrelenting temptation. He was a slave who was working for Potiphar, a high-ranking Egyptian official. And he had refused the advances of his master's wife. But when he left her literally holding his coat after her failed attempt at seduction, she was furious and exacted her revenge by falsely accusing him of assault. She got him thrown into prison. But it was not just any prison. As we saw last week at the end of chapter 39, it was the prison where the king's prisoners were kept. What a coincidence, right? That Joseph landed in that prison. But this would not be the end of the road for Joseph. Just as God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, God was with him in the prison too. And Joseph quickly rose to the top and was entrusted with the management of everything that went on in the prison. And with that position came an unexpected opportunity. And that brings us to our text this morning. 
we see two key prisoners come to stay in the royal prison, and this is the work of God's providence. Look in verse 1 of chapter 40. Sometime after this, after he'd been thrown in prison by his master, Moses tells us that the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody. The cupbearer and the butler, they were more than just your standard run-of-the-mill servants in Pharaoh's house. These were highly trusted officials, two men who would have been in the inner circle of the ruler of Egypt. We have to wonder how they ended up in prison. Did they make him a bad meal? Probably something more serious. Perhaps they were implicated in an assassination plot. But all we're told is that Pharaoh loses his temper and has them thrown into prison. He is angry at them. But in the prison, they receive special treatment. Um, you won't have to think that you know, the people who are working there in the prison are imagining that you know, if these two men are perhaps pardoned, you don't want to make them your enemies because they would be in a position to cost you perhaps even more than your job. So no one wanted to have such influential people as enemies. So they're very well treated in the prison. In fact, Joseph is assigned to serve and care for them. Um, I don't think, I mean, I know our prisons are sometimes fairly posh compared to the ancient prisons, but I don't think any of our jails have servants assigned to the inmates. But Joseph is assigned to care for these two high-ranking political figures. He's assigned to serve and care for them. And while they're in prison, we see two dreams happen in the prison. They each have troubling dreams, and this becomes a point of connection with Joseph. Look in verses 5 through 8. It says, One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Moses tells us, these are not just your regular dreams. These dreams have meaning. Verse 6 says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. I want you to notice this morning both Joseph's compassion towards these men and his confidence. Consider his compassion. I mean, and put yourself in his shoes for a minute. If you've been ripped from your homeland, taken from everything that you know, if you've been sold as a slave, you go from being promised the inheritance in your father's house to being a slave. If you've been falsely condemned and thrown in prison, it'd be pretty easy to feel sorry for yourself, wouldn't it? To think about everything that's happened to you to be consumed with self-focus, self-pity. How many of us would notice and care about someone else if we were in Joseph's shoes? You know, suffering can have that effect on you. Perhaps some of you have seen that in others. Perhaps some of you have experienced that yourself. When you go through something hard, it's possible to become so consumed with your own pain you don't see anyone or anything else. 
It can have a dulling and deadening effect upon our hearts. But suffering can also do the opposite. Suffering can also sharpen and purify you and actually make you more sensitive to the suffering of others. Perhaps some of you have experienced that as well. When you see someone who's experiencing the pain and the hardship of something you've had to walk through, you have a special sense of sympathy for that person. That's what happens with Joseph. He notices their troubled faces and expresses concern for them. He's not wrapped up in his own hardship. But don't just look at his his compassion. What's especially startling here is his confidence. His confidence. He says in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Now the Egyptians believed that wrongly, believed that sleep put you into contact with the realm of the gods. And so because of that, there was a whole cottage industry of dream interpretation, complete with literature and experts and everything. But these men had no access to this. They say, we've had dreams in verse 8, and there's no one to interpret them. They're stuck in jail. And so they can't get to the people that they need to give them the answers. And they're troubled. What might these dreams mean? And when they told Joseph that they had these dreams and needed interpretation, Joseph offers them help. And how does he offer help? Well, could he get them the books that they needed, perhaps? You know, the the special books that help you interpret dreams? Could he arrange for a pagan priest or a magician to come visit them in the jail? No. Joseph has something better for them than that. God is with him. Just as God was Joseph's first thought when he faced temptation, remember that? Potiphar's wife comes to him and he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? God is also Joseph's first thought in this moment of need. And so he is dependent on God and confident in God's divine wisdom. Now this was an outright denouncement of the prevailing wisdom of the day. Joseph declares to them, it's not Egyptian magicians It's not some mysterious book with spells that's going to get you the answers you need. It was God. God is the source of truth and knowledge and wisdom. And here's the thing. If you and I believe that, if we have that kind of a view of God, that our God is supreme over all the world's wisdom, over all the world's knowledge, greater than all the experts of the world, that's going to give you a reflex, a God reflex, A knee-jerk tendency to turn to the Lord when you're in times of need, not to turn to Google or your own reason or the world's experts. That's what Joseph does. He says, listen, does not interpretation belong to God? And he's really not asking a question. He's making a point. He says, tell them to me. Tell them to me. Now, you have to think about Joseph's confidence here for a minute. Had his dreams come true? Years earlier, while still living at home, God had given him two divine dreams that signified he would be supreme and reign over his family. His brother's sheaves bowed down to his sheaf, and the sun, moon, and stars all bowed down to him. Had Joseph's dreams come true? Not even close. He's a slave and a prisoner in a foreign land. But this did not diminish Joseph's confidence in God's power. Rather than grow cynical towards God and his suffering, He had remained full of faith. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And that's what we see in Joseph. Had he seen God's promises come true for him? No. Did that dampen his faith and his confidence in God? No. 
too much for us to admire and to learn from Joseph. So they shared their dreams with him. In verse 9, the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. There's a lot of confidence there. He says, The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and and so to get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So he says, good news. Good news, in three days, you're going to be set free. You're going to get your job back. You're going to be in the house of Pharaoh. But he makes a request. When you get out, please put in a good word for me with Pharaoh because I don't deserve to be here. It's obvious that Joseph is trusting God. He's patient, but he still wants to be out of the prison. He has a desire to experience justice rather than suffer and rot in prison. Well, the chief baker In verse 16, sees that it's been good news for his buddy, so he also shares his dream. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its temptation. Or interpretation, rather. This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. So far, so good, right? Sounds a lot like the other dream. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. This interpretation is a little bit different. Yeah, three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, but it's not the chin-up kind of lift up your head. It's like lift your head up right off your body. He's going to be executed, and he's going to be publicly humiliated and shamed. His body would be impaled and left to be a visual reminder of this is what happens if you go against Pharaoh. The birds would eat his flesh from him. And what happens? Verse 20, both these dreams and the interpretation that Joseph had said, they come true. On the third day, verse 20, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Have you ever been let down by someone? Like really, really let down by someone. Somebody you really needed to come through for you. There was a lot riding on it, and they totally dropped the ball. It's a bitter pill to swallow. Imagine how excited Joseph must have been three days later when the cupbearer was released from prison. He had said, please remember me, and the cupbearer was like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. As the sun rose the next day, Joseph probably eagerly watched the gate, but no one came. The very next day, he excitedly waited to hear a word from the keeper of the prison about his upcoming release, but 
Nothing was said. Then a week went by. Then a month went by. Then a year. Then two years. Joseph knew that he had been forgotten. The cupbearer was happy to be free and get on with his life, but as a very important official, he couldn't be bothered with minor details like a foreign-born slave in a prison. He forgot all about Joseph, out of sight, out of mind. In two years, Joseph remained in the prison, according to verse 1 of chapter 41. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for him. Psalm 105 verse 18 tells us that his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Waiting is hard, isn't it? Waiting is hard. This was a time of testing for Joseph. But what God had promised 11 years before, that his family would bow and that he would rule over them, it would come to pass. He was not destined to remain in prison forever. As Raymond Edmund has written, delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. That's so good, isn't it? That's good. Joseph has had two dreams. Now the royal inmates have had two dreams, but there's another pair of dreams coming, and this pair of dreams will radically change and shape Joseph's future. We see two dreams not just in the prison, two dreams in chapter 41 in the palace. Two dreams in the palace. Pharaoh has two dreams that trouble him. Verse 1, it says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh couldn't shake these two nightmares. I mean, they were so startling, they woke him up from his sleep. And he couldn't understand them. In the morning, he, he couldn't get them out of his mind. I mean, think about it. Cannibalism, the number seven, the, the repetition of some of these themes to show that this was indeed significant. He couldn't get past it. Now, the Pharaoh was said to be a god. And so his dreams were therefore of great importance, but neither he nor any of his experts could discern the meaning. Well, then what do you know? There's a man who's very close to Pharaoh who happens to know a guy, and he remembers. The cupbearer remembers Joseph. In verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker, 
was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. The cupbearer remembers. He recounts his story two years, two years later, and tells Pharaoh. Pharaoh is very interested in getting an explanation. So Joseph is sort of Egyptianized. He's shaved and he's washed and he puts the right kind of clothes on and he's hurried into the presence of Pharaoh. And when asked about the dream, Joseph immediately deflects the attention to God, to Yahweh. He says, it's not in me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You know, the cupbearer had forgotten Joseph, but Joseph had not forgotten God. Not in me, he says. God will give the answer. Now, it would have been tempting to avoid risking offense, you know, to maybe tell Pharaoh what he wanted to hear, to try and please Pharaoh and maybe slip in a word about his imprisonment. Maybe this is his chance. He's got an audience with the man who has the authority to spring him from, from his imprisonment. But Joseph looks at the very personification of power. The supposed divine ruler of Egypt and promptly tells him that God is the only one who can help him. That God is the one he needs to seek. Deflecting the attention from himself and denouncing any other source of divine knowledge. We see here his faith and his confidence in God has not abated. Even though two years he's languished in prison. So Pharaoh recounts his dream in verses 17 through 24. We won't read all of it because it it largely repeats what we've already been told. Pharaoh just once answers. He shares the dream with Joseph. He does add a troubling detail, though, in verse 21. He says, when these cows had eaten the other ones, he says, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. He's troubled by this, that even eating up the other fat cows doesn't seem to change the appearance of these emaciated livestock. So he shares all of this with Joseph, and then Joseph gives him the interpretation in verse 25. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Joseph has already pointed to God as the source of truth, the source of wisdom, the source of insight. He now announces to Pharaoh that God is the one who is sovereign over the fate of the nation. Three times, notice what he says in verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Listen, Pharaoh, you may be thinking of yourself as the most powerful man in the world. Pharaoh, I know that many in Egypt worship you as a god, but there's nothing you can do to stop what's going to happen. The supreme God has told you what he's going to do. This is coming. But there's something they can do not to stop it, but to prepare for it. Joseph goes on to not just give interpretation of the details of the dream, but also to give counsel. Look in verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph says, Pharaoh, there's nothing you or anyone else can do to stop this famine from coming, but there is something you can do to get ready for it. The response to this revelation is not fatalism. It's not just a resignation to say, oh, well, I guess this is what's going to happen. No, it's rather a call to action. As Joseph serves as a sort of prophet, telling Pharaoh what's to, what's to happen, this is not a word of judgment that cannot be escaped. It's a gracious revelation so that the people can be ready, so that they can survive the famine that's going to come. So advising a course of action is thus part of the interpretation of the dream. And Joseph offers this to the Pharaoh. And then what happens next, I don't think Joseph ever would have dreamed of. We see that Joseph rises to prominence and power. Pharaoh receives his counsel and gives him the very promotion that he proposed for someone else. This proposal, verse 37, pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Joseph's been telling everyone that God is the greatest. God is supreme. God has wisdom. And now Pharaoh recognizes that this is a man who knows that God. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride about in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What an amazing promotion! And it goes on, Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Just as Potiphar saw the blessing of God on Joseph and promoted him in his house, just as the keeper of the prison 
saw Joseph's faithfulness and his capabilities, that God was with him and promoted him in the prison. Now Pharaoh sees that this man knows God. He knows the God who controls the future. He knows the God who is over the seasons and the weather and the fate of nations. And Pharaoh concludes, this is the man to lead us through the season to come. So he makes this astonishing pronouncement that Joseph is to be his vice regent, the second in command over all of Egypt. Now, I'm sure that Joseph, at some point in his slavery and in his imprisonment, had likely prayed for deliverance. But do you think he ever imagined that it would happen like this? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's amazing. The one who had been thrown in a pit, the one who'd been sold into slavery, the one who'd been falsely accused and imprisoned, the one who had been forgotten is now the second most powerful man in Egypt. The slave is now the master. Though his brothers had mocked him as a master dreamer, here comes this dreamer, let's get rid of him, look where his dreams and his God-given ability to interpret these dreams had taken him. The result of all this is blessing for Joseph, and not just blessing for Joseph, blessing through Joseph. Look in verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old. He came when he was 17, so this is 13 years later. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. We see as this chapter concludes, all the loose ends start to tie up. Great blessing for Joseph. Much waiting and much suffering eventually leads to great blessing for this man. His administration, we see, is very successful. Grain that can't even be measured. We see here that he, gives, he and his wife have two sons. Two sons cap off a season of fruitfulness and comfort. He says in verse 51 of the firstborn Manasseh. God has made me, he says, to forget, to forget all my hardship and all my father's house, all his homesickness, all his longing for family, all his longing for love, his longing to have a household and an inheritance. Now God has given him so much and made him forget his hardship. And then Ephraim, which means fruitful. 
that God has blessed him and made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. All that he's experienced in Egypt, his slavery and his imprisonment, now he is blessed. Now he is fruitful. Ephraim would actually come to be one day one of the most numerous tribes in all of Israel. God had indeed made him fruitful. Though Joseph, it's interesting to notice, though Joseph was given an Egyptian name, though he was given Egyptian clothes, though he was given an Egyptian wife, who's the daughter of the priest of Ra in the city of On, Joseph gives his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. He was not absorbed into Egyptian life. He continued to trust in the God who had been with him every step of the way, even now at the top. The money and the success and the power, it didn't change him. He's still worshiping God. He's still thankful to God, trusting God, praising God, and it's evident in the naming of his sons. He feared the Lord and faithfully applied himself to his work and to his family. His faith shines through not just in the valley, but also in the mountaintop. But it's not just blessing for Joseph. We also see blessing for the nations through Joseph. You see, Joseph experiences blessing and deliverance, but God provides for the Egyptians through him and for their neighbors. For their neighbors, we see that the Egyptians survived the famine because they come get grain that Joseph had saved up. And the other nations, everyone in the region came to Egypt to buy food. This is partial fulfillment of what God had promised back in chapter 12. Do you remember God's covenant promises to Abraham? He said, I will bless you. He says, I will bless those who bless you. He blesses Egypt because Pharaoh blesses, blesses Joseph. And God also said, and in you or through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The reason God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants is not just to do something for them. It's to do something through them, to show his grace to many people, to reveal his glory to the world. And we see that already beginning to be fulfilled here. But it's not just a fulfillment of that covenant promise. It's also a foreshadowing of the Christ because that that covenant promise that God would provide blessing for all the families of the earth through Abraham's descendants. We see that not just in Joseph. We see that even more in Jesus. Jesus is a righteous and faithful servant like Joseph whose suffering and exaltation would bring salvation to all the families of the earth. The Jesus that would come through the nation Israel would share in many different ways the same trajectory of Joseph's life. This note of blessing for the surrounding nations also gives us a preview of the next chapter, the next episode in the Joseph story. Because you might be tempted to think as you get to the end of chapter 41 that, wow, What a happy ending for Joseph. This is the final scene, right? After this, the credits roll, and Joseph's going to ride off into the Egyptian sunset. But this is actually not the end of the story for Joseph. Remember, the story of Joseph is really not about Joseph. It's not just about his suffering and his reward. It's ultimately about God's plan to keep his promises to his people. And that means that there's much more still to come. Even more twists and turns to this amazing story of God's providence. His story, Joseph's story, will not be complete until he's reunited with his family. Until he reigns over them and they bow before him and he rescues them from this very famine. So this story ends on a high note, but it ends full of expectation. If the dreams of the cupbearer and the dreams of the butler, and the dreams of Pharaoh have all come to pass. 
What about Joseph's dreams? What about Joseph's dreams? Just as the doubling of Pharaoh's dream assured its hurried fulfillment, Joseph's twin dreams of his family bowing down to him, that is on the horizon, and it's drawing near. So that's a lot of scripture to cover. Those of you who are with us know, wow, two chapters, but we still have a little bit of time left. And in that time, I want to ask the question, what do we do with this? We've made some observations. We've learned about the life of Joseph. We've seen how God was at work in his day. So what does that mean for us today in our day? What do we do with this? Well, first I want to take just a minute to clarify what this is not teaching us. Because as possible, we could actually get the wrong idea from this text. Um, it was interesting. I think it was about two weeks ago. I was sitting in a, a coffee shop here in town, and I was doing some reading, some studying, and I overheard some people that were sitting near me having a discussion, and I heard Jesus and the Holy Spirit, some different words pop up, and I thought, oh, that's neat. They're having a, a Bible study. And I kind of eavesdropped just for a minute because I wanted to see, oh, I wonder what they're studying. But as they were talking, it became clear that they weren't really discussing Scripture. There was an older man who was sharing some dreams that he had had that really troubled him. And then these two ladies were sharing with him very authoritatively what they thought these dreams meant and what he needed to do in response to these dreams, what God was trying to tell him. And they sat there for 45 minutes sharing their dreams and, and you know, sharing notes about different things they had seen in their sleep and trying to arrive at the interpretation and giving counsel to people based on these dreams. So, so let me ask you this question. Does the story about Joseph and you can add to this another Old Testament figure, the story of Daniel, who also interpreted dreams for Pharaoh, for, not for Pharaoh, for Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Or maybe you think of Peter in the New Testament, who saw this dream of the sheep coming down in Acts, right, with all the different animals. What are we supposed to make of all this? Do these stories mean that we need to pay attention to our dreams and try to seek interpretation? Is that how God speaks to us today? And are we somehow missing out on maybe, you know, the answers for what's next in our lives? Well, very simply, no. Uh, that's not what this text is teaching. I know some of you are getting a little nervous, like, where are we going with this? No, this, that's not what this text is teaching us. There's a very important principle of biblical interpretation that we would all do well to learn, and that's this, that description is not always the same as prescription. The Bible describes things that happened. It just tells us that they happened. But sometimes there's, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to follow suit. Abraham had two wives, as did Jacob. Does that mean we should have two wives? No, that's not prescriptive. It's not telling us what we should do. It's just telling us what happened. Description does not always equal prescription. The Bible gives us instruction when, it, when God wants to give us instruction. He knows how to tell us what to do. But he also tells us many stories that describe for us how God has worked in time past and how people both succeeded and failed. So description is not the same as prescription. And I do not believe that this text or Daniel or others are instructing us to follow suit and try to interpret dreams. Let me share several reasons why. First of all, we need to understand the times. We need to understand the times. When Joseph is living in Egypt, what what revelation did he have from God? He had nothing, except for the oral tradition of the promises that his, grand, his dad and granddad and great-granddad had received from God. He knew that. He, he, he knew who God was because he'd heard the stories about creation and the flood. But did Joseph have this? 
Did Joseph have this? No, he didn't. Joseph didn't have scripture. Scripture had not yet been written. God was still unfolding his plan. So we need to understand the times. These dreams were revealing important truths that otherwise could not have been known. Otherwise, Joseph would have no idea about what was to come in the future. God was still giving revelation. The time we live in is different. God has already told us what the future holds, and he's recorded it for us in his word, and he's preserved it for us so we have access to God's will and to God's word and to future prophecy. It's all here. We need to understand that Joseph and Daniel and others, they're living in a different time than we are. We also need to understand the significance of what was revealed in these dreams. If you're talking about Joseph or the dreams that Daniel interpreted or even Peter's dream in the book of Acts, what was revealed in those dreams were actually truths that would change the direction of history. The fate of the human race and of God's redemptive purposes for his people, it all hinged on the things that were being revealed in these dreams. So let me ask you this. Are your dreams as important as those dreams? Probably not, okay? I don't think that God is revealing to any of us truths that can't be found anywhere else that are actually going to shape the trajectory of world history, like when Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about the kingdoms that would succeed his. I don't think the promises or or, or the dreams that, that you and I have are revealing promises of how God is going to provide redemption for his covenant people. Our dreams are not the same as those dreams, okay? We need to understand where we stand and under the significance of the historical value of these truths. These dreams shape the outcome of world history and redemptive history, and our dreams are just not necessary to that unfolding plan of God. And we also need to understand, third, how God speaks to us now, because the reality is we don't need dreams. We don't need dreams. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrew writes, long ago, At many times and in many ways, including dreams and visions, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But The author of Hebrews says this, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The author of Hebrews says, Listen, in times past God was giving visions and dreams and speaking through the prophets, but the final revelation of God, the perfect and complete revelation of all that we need to know is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the one that John calls the Word made flesh. Because we stand on this side of the, of the birth and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, and because we have the teachings of Jesus, because we have the foundation laid by his disciples, those apostles who told us everything that Jesus wanted us to know and to do, we don't need more revelation. The author of Hebrews says that God has spoken. And in the Greek, uh, the, the verbiage there is this, this idea of completion and fullness that God's revelation to us is done because Jesus has come and his apostles have told us all his words. In John 1.17, the apostle John writes, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you want truth? Do you want God's revelation? Then look to Jesus and the teaching about him that we have in his word. This is enough. This is enough for us. 
2 Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Peter says we have everything we need, all things that we need. You don't need some secret revelation. You don't need some secret higher knowledge. Although some people who will knock on your door, and they usually come in pairs, they will tell you, that this is not enough, that there's more, that you need to read the Book of Mormon or that you need the Watchtower magazine to know additional things that God is telling us. You know, the world would be free of many cults and false religions if people would only see this. Michael was reminding me this week how the religion of Islam, one of the most powerful and influential religions in the world, you know how it started? Because a man had a dream. And he told everyone else, this is what God told me. We need to be careful. We need to be very careful. Understand today that the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us as believers. Just as God was with Joseph, God is with us. His Spirit dwells in us. But his ministry to us is not to help us interpret dreams. You know why the Holy Spirit is with you? To help you interpret the Scriptures. God gives us insight not into shady memories, uh, you know, murky memories of, of what was bouncing around in our brains while we were unconscious. The Holy Spirit gives us insight into the very words that he has inspired. You know what, what Paul tells Timothy? He doesn't say that dreams are given by God and are profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and in righteousness. No, what does Paul say? That all scripture has been given to us by God and that scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is where we find everything we need to know. This is where we learn who God is. This is where we find out what God's promises are. This is where we find out what the future holds. Not every detail, perhaps, that we want to know, and not all the details about our personal experience. You won't find a chapter and verse that says, you know, Lucy, this is who you are going to marry. I don't know who that is. God hasn't told us. We don't get all the personal details we want, but we get the details that matter, that Jesus is coming back, that his kingdom will be established, that wrongs will be made right, that there's a judgment for the wicked. We know the details that matter. God has given this to us in his word. He's told us everything we, know, we need to know about his plans for the world and for his people. So that's what this story doesn't mean, okay? We're not supposed to get together in little groups after church and share our dreams and try to find interpretation. That's not how God speaks to us today. He doesn't need to, and he stopped doing that. We have the scriptures. We have the spirit. This is where we look for revelation. So what do we get from this story? What should we learn? Here's the simple bottom line. We need to trust God when things go from bad to worse because deliverance is coming. Trust God when things go from bad to worse because deliverance is coming. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be the next vice president of the United States, like Joseph got promoted politically. What that does mean when we say deliverance is coming, what it does mean is that God is at work that his plans are good, that his plans are perfect, and that God knows what he's doing even when bad things happen to good people. Because one day, as we sang so beautifully earlier this morning, one day all who trust in Christ will be raised from the dead. And we will reign with Christ. And we will receive a glorified body, never again to die or to get sick 
to break down, to have all these aches and pains. We will receive an internal inheritance with Christ, and we will enter eternal rest and enjoy eternal glory. That is what is promised to everyone who knows Jesus Christ and is united to him through faith. That's what's coming. So no matter how bad things get, we know we can look to that glorious future. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He continues in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait. He says we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now listen to this. This is key. Our hope, even in waiting, even in suffering, Paul says in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait, and we wait in hope, even when we suffer, even when we're forgotten, even when things go from bad to worse, even when we start to wonder if all of God's glorious promises are ever going to come true. Paul says we long for that, we groan, but we wait in hope. We believe in what we do not see that God will do everything he has promised to do. Paul concludes this glorious chapter in Romans 8 with the triumphant declaration that nothing in the universe can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in the universe can stop his gracious plans from coming to pass. Friends, we need this morning the confidence that Paul had. We need the confidence that Joseph had. That when things in your life go from bad, like being a slave, to worse, being in prison. When they go from bad, like being in prison, to worse, being forgotten in prison, we know we can trust that God is at work, that God is good, and that God will bring his plans to pass. But this won't always be easy. It's not easy. What it's going to mean for us, it means waiting on God when you feel forgotten or when you feel stuck. Joseph suffered as a slave and then as a prisoner for 13 years. 13 years is a long time. Did God forget him? You can answer that. No, he didn't. Did God stop caring? No, he didn't. Joseph's experience was difficult, but it was meaningful. His pain was filled with purpose. Joseph didn't know what that purpose was, but he endured. How did he endure? Because he was confident in God. He knew the character of the Lord, and he knew the promises of God, and that was enough for him, and it needs to be enough for us as well. But it's going to mean we have to wait. That's often how it is for God's children. Abraham waited uh, for descendants. Years and years and years, he waited for a son. Joseph waited to see his dreams fulfilled. The ch children of Israel waited as they wandered 40 years in the wilderness to enter the promised land. The nation Israel waited for centuries for their Messiah. And we today await the return of Christ and the fulfillment of his promises to us. The life of faith is often one of waiting. Waiting's just so hard. This is simple. You all know this, but that's why we have all these chapters in Genesis fleshing it out. 
because we need to be shown. We need to be reminded. We need to be told. We need to be encouraged that waiting is worth it. And God always keeps his promises. For us to expect God to always act immediately, to always act when we want him to, it's expecting God to do something he's never promised. God doesn't work on our timetable. He acts in his time. And he calls us to embrace the delay and to look to the future fulfillment and walk obediently and patiently in the present. And that means we have to wait. And it means not only do we have to wait, but we also have to endure. We need to persevere through the difficulty. But we can take hope this morning in knowing that there's value in such adversity. Your waiting, your perseverance through the things that you're going through, it's not wasted. God is at work in the waiting. He's sharpening us, pruning us, purifying us, preparing us. There's no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. There's no shortcuts to humility and dependence. These are things that God works in us as we wait, as we endure hardship and difficulty, but we'll never have such pearls if we tap out, if we lose faith, If we give up, endurance is necessary. We have need of endurance. But you know what? God doesn't ask us to do something that he himself has never gone through. Jesus knows what it's like. He understands. I love Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. I just want to briefly look at this and just be reminded of the experience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul recounts the humility, the suffering, the patience of Jesus. As he says in verse 6, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For the joy that was set before him, Hebrews tells us, Jesus endured the cross and he despised the shame. But was that the end of Jesus' story? No. He endured to the point of death on a cross. And verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Savior knows what it's like to suffer, and he's gone before us, and he's also gone before us into glory. And when he returns, our knees will bow to him, many of us in joy and in celebration because it will mean that our suffering is now over, our waiting is now done. But perhaps for not all of us will that moment be a moment of joy. I have to ask this morning, is your knee bowed to this Savior? You see, Joseph would provide a temporary salvation for many through the the providing of food. But Jesus offers eternal salvation in his blood. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I'm inviting you to place your confidence in him to trust in the promises of Jesus, to forgive and to cleanse and to save all who will look to him by faith. Lay aside your self-reliance. Lay aside your pride. Lay aside your doubt and unbelief. 
place your faith in Jesus Christ and experience the salvation that only he can provide. He has power to save, and he promises to do so. We need a robust understanding, as we mentioned earlier, of God's providence, that everything that happens is under God's control, and that he causes all things to work together for good. We need this truth to be more than just an idea. It needs to be a part of the very fiber and fabric of our faith. Thankfully, God has provided for us in his word stories like this, stories like the life of Joseph that shape our faith and affirm God's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his purposes, his faithfulness to his people. May we learn to trust, to wait, and to persevere, knowing that one day God will lift up our heads and raise us to glory. God, as we read these stories, we are amazed at how you work out all the details. Every twist and turn of Joseph's life may have been a shock and a surprise to him, but you knew exactly what you were doing. And that's the same God that you are today. You've not changed, and every detail of our lives is held in your hands. God, help us to trust you. Help us to wait. Help us to endure. We need strength to endure. We need faith to wait. We ask that you would give us these gifts by your grace, empower us by your spirit. I pray that as we look to your word, that your spirit would open up the truth to us, and that as we see your promises, we would be strengthened for the journey ahead. God, we praise you and give you glory for your goodness. We ask that we uh, would be shaped by these stories into a people who know you and love you and follow you. Amen.